When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode. My name is Matthias Fueling, and I am a PhD candidate in history at Temple University. And I am very lucky and honored to um, interview uh, Nicholas Mulder. He is an assistant professor of early mo- of European modern history at uh, Cornell University. And he just came out with an excellent new book, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. Um, which I think is very groundbreaking and very, very, very um, exciting. So, Nick, uh, welcome to New Books Network. Um, Tell me about yourself. How did you get involved um, in the historical profession, and how did you get started on this specific project? Yeah, thank you, Matthias, for interviewing me. Uh, So I think a good place to start is maybe just to say a little bit about, about my trajectory, because there's a lot of different approaches that I dealt with in the course of writing this book. Uh, different approaches to history, and I think they reflect a little bit also where I came from and and what sort of uh, uh, yeah an attitude to the writing of history I developed over the course of my education. So I actually did my undergraduate degree in economics and philosophy, uh, dual major, and for a long time I was quite hesitant to embrace history because I I wasn't quite sure uh, what sort of theory was in there. I think I came from the idea that you have to start with uh, sound theory and that uh, arranging facts was not always useful uh, without some theory in the background. And I slowly dropped that and became interested in the actual texture of historical reality and found that the theory that they teach you in philosophy and economics is very abstract and not always particularly helpful. And I did a master's degree in MPhil in political thoughts and intellectual history. So I was beginning to become more directly interested in politics. And then I went to grad school at Columbia. And it's really there that this project began, like many uh, uh, dissertation projects that become books, it began in a graduate seminar. And it was at a moment where Susan Peterson, who was a very important figure uh, in the historiography of interwar internationalism, and she teaches at Columbia, was having a few students present on different aspects of the early 20th century. And she had just herself put the finishing touches on this big new book about the League of Nations mandate system, The Guardians. And that book really did a pretty major reassessment of an important part of interwar internationalism. It uh, also was part of a much broader reassessment of the League of Nations. And around that time, the early 2010s, mid-2010s and now all the way up until today, you know, every year, I think there's at least one or two 
new books about some aspect of interwar internationalism. So she was really at the forefront of this development. And in a sense, this book is also just a, a moving along in that broad historiographical trend and, and you know community of interest. So that's one thing. But I found myself going in a slightly different direction from some of the other literature, which was focusing a lot on the League as a site for global governance. And there's really interesting work right on economic and financial advising. Jamie Martin's uh, book, The Meddlers, is coming out this summer uh, with Harvard University Press. So uh, that's, uh, I think, going to really be a major study of the League as an economic uh, advisory technocracy. There's also uh, work by people like Mira Siegelberg on statelessness. There's work on humanitarianism by Bruno Cabanas, all sorts of work on uh, refugees, on drug control, uh, anti-people uh, trafficking efforts, etc. So a really big body of this, uh, Patricia Clavin on the Economic and Financial Organization, the League, Glenda Sluga, a, a large number of scholars. And one of the things, however, that I uh, it really struck me is that there hadn't really been that much of a reassessment of the League as a security institution. And this was actually a pretty major part of what contemporaries in the interwar period saw the League as doing. That was the kind of business, I think, that many of them thought was its prime purpose. And there, actually, this old you know, conclusion that the League had basically been a, a failure seemed to be still impossible to really contest. And I became very interested in the way that the experience of the First World War informed the first people working in the League. And there you could also really identify the fact that personnel is policy in a way. And many of the people in allied states who were involved in economic warfare efforts in the war became leading officials in the League of Nations. And that all of a sudden opened my eyes to the fact that the League had been founded on the expectation that they had this very new instrument of sanctions. And I tried to find other histories of this. I tried to find people who had written about this. And I could find, you know, there's a, there's a few histories that deal with discrete episodes, such as the Italo-Ethiopian War, for example, or some sanctions episode later in the 20th century, like on South Africa and Rhodesia. But there really wasn't any history that tried to understand the development of sanctions as an instrument itself in international organizations and also by national governments in this interplay between the national and the international. So that's really how I kind of set out uh, this uh, on this project and uh, researching the, the origins and the early institutional development of, of sanctions. Yeah. Fascinating. And from my angle, it seems that you are part of a kind of burgeoning new historiographical moment. Um, obviously, with the centenary of, of the beginning of World War One, there's renewed interest. And as you mentioned, there's been lots of new work talking about the interwar period and liberal internationalism. But it also, I think, is tying in, from my perspective, with this new historiography focusing on, I guess, what I would call a kind of prehistory of neoliberalism or a kind of taking liberalism seriously um, rather than viewing the League of Nations and liberal internationalism as a failure. Um, during the interwar period, rather as an important sort of moment and site um, as institutions and as policy um, and personnel for determining ideology and determining structures that would go on to have even greater influence after World War II. And I'm thinking particularly of, say, Quinn Slobodian's work on um, the globalists. I'm thinking of Adam Tooze's work on um, the deluge is kind of two of the most prominent, but a kind of broader moment um, that's sort of reevaluating the interwar period. And how do you see your work with the economic weapon 
um, interacting with with this kind of burgeoning historiography? Do you see yourself as part of that? Do you see yourself as an? Do you think that's an accurate assessment of what's happening currently within historical writing? I, I think it is. I think that's a very nice observation that there is definitely an interest in trying to emphasize continuity across World War II, which for too long was seen as a kind of caesura uh, before which everything was fundamentally different. And in important ways, of course, some of these things were different. Uh, Susan Peterson herself, still, I think, really uh, uh, the most authoritative figure in this new League of Nations literature, also emphasized uh, repeatedly that, you know, you should when you hear the phrase League of Nations, you should kind of think League of Empires, because that's what it really was to a large degree. It was a world in which imperialism still existed. And so there were really differences, right? Things that changed in the 40s and 50s with decolonization and the United Nations and the modern understanding of self-determination. But at the same time, there's undeniably at the level of technical expertise, a certain continuity. And Quince Lodian's books brought that, uh, uh, he, he's really brought that out. But I think you could find it also in other uh, studies uh, in in particularly, I think economic history has an interesting way, of course, because it's based on these discrete orders, right? That you built the gold standard, the breakdown of it, the Bretton Woods system. It has really an order focused kind of chronology that makes it easy to write. But also, when you look at the actual level of bureaucracy, there's also many institutions, just institutions with names that persist. So the League of Nations was also the thing that created the first international. Court, the Permanent Court of International Justice, the PCIJ, which was just relabeled the ICJ in 1946 and is still, you know, uh, this court. The International Labour Organization was the creation of the League of Nations. Interpol emerged at that time. So there's all these things that just very clearly are interwar creations, are Versailles or, you know, Versailles era, 1910s, 1920s institutions. And sanctions are nowadays used, I think, much more broadly, they're definitely not at all something that the UN has a monopoly over. Uh, probably they're actually used most now by the United States. So they're in that sense, they appear as a kind of national instrument. But it was clear that this space in the international order within which sanctions could be used was crafted by the League. And so that's, I think, one point of the book that I, I try and emphasize that the League of Nations has really had a significant effect, even if it no longer exists, even if it failed, because it carved out this space within which, until today, we use economic sanctions. Great. And from there, let's dive into sort of the content of the book itself. And you really start um, at the end of World War One, and this concept of the economic blockade that the Allies had put against Germany, and how you sort of argue that this morphs through the interwar period into sort of the foundations of modern day sanctions. Um, and so can you explain this argument? Like, I want to sort of like, see if we can kind of follow our way through the book and this really sort of, this kind of almost like alchemical process where a weapon of war, what's seen explicitly as a, as a weapon of war, it, literally in your title, the economic weapon becomes seen as an anti-war mechanism, becomes seen as a way to achieve peace, this sort of um, um, almost like a weapon without a real sort of like figure behind it becomes the way in which nations, empires can sort of self-discipline the world order. Yes, that's one of the really striking things that it took me quite a long time to figure this out. How do you write this story about something that clearly has its origins in the use of force and in wartime policy, but 
which is surrounded in its subsequent history in the 20s and 30s by a rhetoric that is very explicitly not just non-war, but anti-war. And this has to do also with cultural understandings of what is militarism and particularly liberalism in the way that uh, British and French early 20th century liberals saw themselves portrayed liberalism as inherently anti-militaristic. It was against large standing armies and it was also interested in making sure that the state was as small as possible, that it wouldn't unnecessarily intrude into the order of, of the market economy and into private life. And clearly sanctions forced some sort of, of, of change in that regard. And it was interesting that these figures that I studied in the, the blockade ministries in, in, in World War One had a really strong sense that they had to plan for post-war order. That's, of course, something many historians, you know, in both World Wars One and Two, have looked at, even the Napoleonic period now. There's also new books uh, on, on this, how war itself is often already a time where you look ahead and try to figure out what to put in place after the war to prevent the conflict you're still in from actually recurring. And the interesting thing was that I found figures, particularly the British Minister of Blockade, which is itself a very interesting fact, that Britain created a separate ministry for, to run the blockade, a full bureaucracy just for this one policy instrument. The British Minister of Blockade was a conservative, Robert Cecil, and he's a key figure in the book because he also became a major advocate of the League of Nations. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1937, so he was uh, far and away one of the most famous interwar internationalists. If you go to the Palace of Nations in Geneva now, the old seat of the League of Nations, it's Cecil's words that are still uh, above the doorway leading to the League of Nations assembly. So, yeah, they're still emblazoned there. And what's really interesting is that right before he, he started all those things, this was a man who was in charge of waging an absolutely brutal economic total war against the civilian population of Central Europe. So that was a very striking thing. And it took me a while to figure out that he had already, during the war itself, together with the people around him, been kind of thinking about what could you put in place in the future to prevent this war from happening. And the blockade to them wasn't really the way wars were traditionally fought. It didn't have a high visibility to civilians. It was run from ministries. It was based on secret intelligence. It didn't require anyone to put on a uniform and go and fight. So it had a certain uh, limited visibility to the public that was appealing to them, but it was definitely projecting force. So this is something already that I think in their minds, in, in the minds of Cecil and the people around him, made it potentially very interesting and useful as a post-war order-preserving instrument. And then also what's very interesting is that in the war itself, Cecil actually re has a thought experiment at some point that he puts in a memorandum to the British cabinet. And he says, what if we go back to the July crisis, the way that this whole mess got started? And imagine what we could have done to stop this from escalating into a world war if we had had the ability to threaten Austria-Hungary or Germany in July 1914 with an economic blockade. Just imagine. So this into this cabinet of British you know, Liberal Party politicians under Lloyd George is a tremendously appealing and interesting argument. And essentially, the League of Nations, you could see it as a, a, a way of trying to instantiate partially Cecil's thought experiment. And uh, the interesting thing is that in the 20s, it actually did seem to work. So there are two border wars, uh, in, uh, fighting uh, incidents and, and skirmishes that I analyze in the book. One in 1921, that's kind of forgotten, actually, between Yugoslavia and Albania. 
And it was due to the fact that Albania's border hadn't been fixed. So Yugoslav troops moved into the north. And the League of Nations, uh, led in this case uh, by uh, uh, Lloyd George, the British prime minister on the, on the, on who appeared um, before the council and also in front of parliament, he made a very explicit threat that they would uh, impose a, a, an economic blockade, but without going to war. So you could start to see that in the 20s, against Soviet Russia, against uh, Weimar Germany during the peace negotiations, they keep blockade in place or they threaten the reposition of blockade. And that is the new instrument that they've hit on. And it was appealing to them because they were trying to demobilize soldiers. They were, you know, sincere liberals who actually did want to dismantle the standing armies, not have a repetition of the war in the trenches. And I think because so many people had such terribly negative associations with the war in the trenches, with the senseless bloodshed that it entailed, that they were very interested in trying to find out this other way, something that could potentially be as powerful as war, but not have any of the repercussions for civilians, uh, or at least for the for those fighting, uh, right? They do definitely have very strong repercussions for the target. So that's really the, the kind of transformation. And as you can imagine, if you take something from a wartime, uh, like blockade, and you make it possible to implement it in peacetime, people aren't just going to say, oh, well, that's great. You know, let's just do that. <laughs> so there's a lot of resistance, a ton of controversy. And that's actually something that I was quite surprised to find how much just what an absolutely enormous amount of source material there is, how well documented and how openly and publicly this contestation over the ethics and the legality of targeting civilians in 1919, 1920, 1921, is in Europe and how many massive social movements is involved. So that was cool because then it allowed me in a way to also write the history of this from below a little bit. Um, the book is largely, I think, a story about experts and governments and, um, you know, international institutions. But there are real moments where the targets and the people from below populations, I think, also showed themselves capable of real initiative in response. And the moment right around when the League of Nations is created in the spring of 1919 and after that, uh, it's fascinating that the actual architecture of the League itself is being hammered out in Paris by the, the major powers at the same time as those powers are imposing a, a continued blockade on Soviet Russia and on Hungary. So this was not an abstract thing or something. It was extremely uh, uh, you know, concrete and even parallel in time. Um, and I maybe should say one thing about Cecil. So there's this I put a picture in the book as well from one of the most astonishing documents that I've ever found in an archive, which is a little note from a British food controller it, written in May 1919 about whether or not they should continue the blockade of Soviet Russia. And they'd never declared war on the Bolsheviks after they'd come to power. This was a purely de facto economic war, not an official de jure decision. Uh, and there was no parliamentary decision to declare war on Russia or anything like that. So they were still trying to basically do regime change with an economic blockade. And this food controller writes to Cecil, the former minister of blockade, and he says, we need some uh, way of lifting this blockade because the Russians are being starved. They're radicalizing, they're embracing Bolshevism more. And I just don't believe that we're going to end Bolshevism by starving women and children. And Cecil in his own uh, Penn writes uh, diagonally on top of it, I see no other alternative, and then just ends it with his signature. And this is written, you know, superimposed an official message. And this is the same time that Cecil is putting the finishing touches with Woodrow Wilson and all these other people on what the League of Nations will look like. He's basically saying, 
continue this. And this is going on at the exact same time, the same person in the same location. He's all running it from Paris. And that made me realize that there was this whole side to the story of liberal internationalism in the interwar period uh, that involves the use of force through sanctions. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And what I really was fascinated by reading your book is kind of the way in which sanctions or sort of the economic weapon, as they referred to it at the time, is a kind of economic planning. And, but it's being done by people who are all ardent liberals and they all have this sort of, you know, we, we believe in free trade. We believe in this vision of kind of a globalized cosmopolitan world in which market interactions will civilize people and it will sort of bring people to a higher level of consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. And yet sort of the dark side of that vision is this high centralized ability to cut off market relations by smaller nations if they go against this kind of perfect utopian liberal order that they're trying to build. And I find it this fascinating that there's this kind of almost this unintentional hypocrisy at the heart of this, where they want to create a kind of globalized liberal world. And yet at the same time, they're willing to use this really brutal force. And they're really willing to use this, this ruthless form of, of what I thought of as, as economic planning but it's sort of in a negative sense of cutting people off from the ability to take part in international in economic relations um, from getting people from cutting off people's ability. It's also, they sort of, as you said, with Cecil, they sort of do it in this, this very, I don't know how just to call it, but a kind of like effective altruism sense where they think, well, better to punish the civilian population now than to allow economic or political sort of malcontent to fester leading to war. So it's almost this kind of, again, I see this in the rhetoric nowadays of liberalism, where it's better to sort of punish, you know, sort of consumer choice almost in order to get better societal outcomes. But in this sense, it's much more, well, far better to have, say, civilians starve than to have Soviet Russia engage on a war of conquest or something like that. And I'm wondering sort of, what do you think about this sort of framing of the blockade and the sanctions as a kind of form of negative economic planning? I like that way of putting it, actually. And uh, but what? Well, I would say two things in response to that. Actually, the first is that if you put it that way, then we should ask ourselves why were states in the early twentieth century so able to do this? Why did they not see those contradictions? I think imperialism is a large part of the answer. And there we come back to the why the League of Nations should really be called the League of Empires point. And I think that that also, in an interesting way maybe qualifies slightly what we were talking about earlier of the interwar origins of 20th century liberal internationalism, because this story about imperialism clearly goes back to the 19th or even maybe the 18th century. So there's actually a much older lineage of using blockade and actually in imperial cases, sometimes using blockade without declaring war. That's something known as Pacific blockade. Uh, it's a very interesting and kind of overlooked practice, but some countries were already thought of in the 19th century as basically too puny and small to be worth declaring war against. And the imbalance of force was just so power, so enormous that great uh, powers would be able to use economic coercion against them and just expect that they would yield very quickly. They weren't really thought to be kind of worthy of an, a formal declaration of war. And those cases sometimes did involve actually quite prolonged standoffs. And it's clear that you can't really do that uh, for any length of time without starting to develop better intelligence and a more invasive bureaucracy. And 
In the 19th century, not much of that actually leads to permanent new institutions, but that's where World War I really comes in because the demands of fighting a total war require you to build all these new economic interventions institutions, right? Economic planning happens domestically or at certainly economic intervention, perhaps not planning as we now understand it, but definitely much more direct intervention. And those two experiences of economic war and economic planning exist side by side in 1914, 1918. And planning is also not just a way or uh, that you uh, can gather knowledge, but you also try, countries try to protect themselves from blockade by using planning. So I would even say that the more direct use of planning is the reaction to sanctions in the target states or the reaction to blockade. And it's very interesting in that regard to juxtapose people like Lloyd George, Cecil, Clemenceau, and Wilson, the, the people who created modern economic sanctions in the League uh, based on their experience in World War I. At that same time in the war, you also have in Central Europe figures like Ludendorff and Walter Rathenau, who are important in reconceiving what it actually requires to run an industrial economy that is materially severed from the outside world. And Rathenau, of course, becomes a key figure in the entire 20th century history of planning for, pe for people like Lenin to his Asian followers. He has an important function there. And he too is reacting quite directly to these raw material shortages brought on by the blockade. So in an interesting way, right, economic war is also an accelerator of the development of the modern war economy. And I would say those two things are very symbiotic. And I'm thinking war communism, in this case, it's sort of war liberalism or something like that. Um, yeah, so yeah. how did these, these sanctions work? So these, as they called it, the blockade, how did this actually work kind of on the ground um, and reading it, I was really fascinated by how you sort of tie it in with sort of financial structures, but that these, these sanctions at the time are very much focused on raw materials. It's preventing imports of cotton, of food, of oil, um, of all of the, the major kind of consumer items you need to run an economy in the modern world. How were, were sort of nations prevented from accessing those goods by economic blockades? The first challenge that brings us back to the previous question is gathering the knowledge, actually figuring out what does an economy in 1914 run on. And I use uh, an example of manganese and the global supply chain for the metal, the alloy uh, metal of, of manganese that's used in, in steel production to make high quality steel as an example to show just how bewilderingly complex it is. So in a way, you can think of this blockade building experience as a kind of exercise in figuring out this new governmentality on the fly and trying to find from whatever source is available, newspapers, people on the ground, trying to analyze data in a more abstract way and trying to figure out what, you know, how do the imports and exports line up? And is there any kind of gap or unaccounted for source of imports that we might not be aware of uh, to, to the target state? Those are the sorts of ways that these bureaucrats went about building the blockade. It was really a voyage of discovery. It's very clear that they, in many cases, had no idea what they were really getting involved in. But the, it's the pressure of the war and the idea that they're doing something that has a meaning in the larger context of the war that helps them get more innovative and more creative about this. So this, of course, takes on a quite different quality when you, in peacetime in the 20s and 30s, want to use sanctions as a threat. And this was the hope that sanctions would not have to be imposed, that the memory of the blockade itself and of this hunger and starvation it caused would itself be enough of a deterrent 
to prevent any would-be aggressors from trying to challenge the Versailles order. And in that regard, what's what's kind of striking is that you start to see governments having to negotiate with their own society and their own private sector the need to impose these controls in peacetime. That's also legally quite difficult because most governments don't have any powers of economic intervention outside of wartime, right? Peace is synonymous with laissez-faire. Only war allows for intervention. So if you want to keep sanctions peaceful and a peacetime thing, but you do want the intervention, you're going to have to come up with some other legal way of of doing this. And in uh, the British Empire and also in the United States, there's a powerful legal tool called the Trading with the Enemy Act. In 1914, it was passed by the UK. And in the US, it's passed in 1917. It's actually still in effect in the US today. And it's often used for sanctions uh, purposes as well today by the US presidency. But this is a legal and administrative, a statistics gathering and intelligence operation. And once you've laid out some of those actual links, the other thing that becomes uh, irrelevant is actually to figure out what's the best way politically and diplomatically speaking of going about severing them. And here also the actual conflict that you're trying to prevent can make the optimum sanctions design very different from case to case. Not all countries are alike. They have very different trading patterns and very different kinds of political economies, right, in in terms of what would and what wouldn't work. And one of the very interesting things about doing the research for this book was to go deep into the study committees and the special advisory organs that did this sort of analysis. And you can find them oftentimes studying countries discreetly. So in Britain, there's a subcommittee of the highest strategic body, the Committee of Imperial Defense. They have a subcommittee on uh, advisory questions of trade and war uh, in uh, trade and blockade in time of war, the ATB committee. And they basically come up with an entire folder. They have binders and binders full of sanctions plans, basically, uh, against Turkey, against the Soviet Union, against China, against Japan, against Germany, against France. They were planning for sanctions against their own allies as well. Should there be some sort of you know, potentially maybe a Bolshevik takeover in France or something along those lines. But they definitely were trying to look at the world through sanctionist eyes, basically. And it's it's fascinating. And, and one of the things that also really struck me is that they began to have debates about what the best way of going about imposing sanctions w- were and whether you should try and cut off the commodities all in one go and basically try and go for a maximum shock effect of strangulation, a kind of quick acting economic weapon, or if actually you should try and very discreetly intervene and drive down certain commodities so that you would sort of, it you know, cause less damage to the world economy and that you would have a more gradual effect and it wasn't likely to escalate into wider war. And you could really see the divergence between those two approaches, between the kind of sudden commodity-focused cut-off approach and the more gradual financial pressure, particularly against foreign exchange reserves uh, in the 1930s. And in the mid-1930s cases, like the League of Nations sanctions against Italy during the Italo-Ethiopian War, that they become a real site for debate between those rival schools of sanctions design, if you will. Okay, fascinating. And so from there, then, that this is a good segue into sort of the, the I guess, the big question of, well, do they work? <laughs> um, um, maybe not in sort of abstract as a whole, but in this in this given historical period, the interwar period, where you bring up the examples in the book of, of this border conflict in Albania and Yugoslavia, conflict with Greece. And in those cases, you're very clear to point out that the threat of sanctions 
remains just a threat, that it's not actually imposed. It's more sort of the fear that the possibility of sanctions creates um, is what leads to a rapid um, resolution of those conflicts. However, in the, you bring up Italy, and you really examine Italy in some really fascinating depth and about how did sanctions work regarding Italy with the, the, the war um, and then also what impact it had on Italian society. And I'm wondering then, do you think it's fair to say that did sanctions work? Did they not work? Um, I know that's a very loaded question, um, but maybe you could sort of expand on this issue of how the sanctions worked against Italy, why they occurred and what the impact was. And maybe maybe it's not a question of asking, like, did they work, but sort of um, uh, sort of what the long-term get like influence of the sanctions were, because obviously in the book, and mm-hmm. I'll, I want to ask about this later, is then the impact that the threat of sanctions has on fascist ideology and, con- yes. and concepts of economic autarky. Yes. So interestingly, I think maybe we could first start with just asking how would you go about answering that question and what sort of history do you need to answer the question of whether sanctions work? And the thing that I found myself eventually converging on to grapple with these questions is really a mix of approaches. It's partially a story about the actual, you know, plumbing of globalization, which is an economic history story. It's a story about the history of infrastructure. It's partially a story about diplomatic history. It's about, you know, who who can you get on your side and and, and politics, etc. It's a story about the legitimacy of the instrument, which is a domestic, political, social history story. And then I think the other thing is that, you know, every country, like I said, has its own political economy. It ha- also has its own culture and its own historical experiences and historical memory, collective memory. And really, I think to get the fully textured understanding of what sanctions do, you really need to assess culture and and how history is embedded and kept alive. Historical experiences are also uh, things that, of course, leave deep legacies in institutions and in, in collective attitudes and mentalities. And that really kind of pushes you away from this very material analysis, which political science and IR, when they ask this question about do sanctions work, are very focused on, and much more towards culture and ideology. So it's this question that really bridges, I think, the humanities and the social sciences. And history, of course, has more humanistic and more social science sides. But in that sense, I think history is such a a, a great way of of getting at this. But it requires a a kind of uh, multi-faceted and quite a capacious uh, history to do so. And I mean, I'll leave it to readers to, you know, conclude if they find the the way that I've gone about it uh, convincing, but it was at least for me, a very interesting thing to try and put some of these approaches side by side. And in the case of Italy, there we have terrific work on Italian fascist ideology. We have very uh, detailed studies also of the Italian fascist regime politically, good social histories. So there was a lot of material there. I didn't have to do that much new digging. But when you enter it from a different starting point, a lot of these received stories take on a different hue. For a long time, people, I think, had interpreted the League of Nations sanctions against Italy as something that was really a kind of token gesture, very symbolic. And the assumption was the League has failed anyway, so these sanctions could not ever have amounted to much. And, of course, it was well known that Mussolini responded in late 1935 and early 1936 with this anti-sanctions and autarky campaign, uh, autarkia and anti-sancionista, uh, these new terms that they came up, came up with as well. And that's on, you know, not, not really a, a controversial 
point. But what is, I think, interesting is if you take liberalism seriously, you should also take its opponents seriously. And sometimes when these regimes say that they are reacting against something, uh, of course, in fascism, there were a lot of uh, ghosts and, and, and forms of paranoia that they had. But in this case, they weren't entirely untrue. They, there were actually instruments that were being used and that were very openly considered as ways of disciplining them that were imposed, of course. Sanctions, it turned out, did have the potential to do a lot of damage. And they actually did force Italy into quite severe financial retrenchment, austerity. It was, a, I think, much closer run thing, this episode of sanctions in the Italo-Ethiopian War, where Italy, under different circumstances, if the Ethiopians had had more support, if the Americans had come in, or if Italy simply had not had as much military luck as it did, then it's quite possible to think of an alternative outcome. So, you know, there the kind of sense of defeat that hangs over the whole league as I think colored our perception that this was never going to work. But um, in reality, it was a much more fragile and close run thing. And I think there I just, you know, follow in the tracks of more revisionist accounts of the interwar period that have shown that, you know, despite the incredible shock and awe of fascist militarism, it was ultimately also a quite, uh, you know, on a sort of shoestring uh, attempt at insurgency uh, against glo- the global liberal order. So there were serious weaknesses. And ultimately, you need to explain both why they reacted so aggressively, but also why they in the end failed. So there, I think sanctions have a really interesting role to play. And in general, also, I, I am a firm believer in the, I guess you could call it the from the horse's mouth approach to uh, historical uh, source analysis. Sometimes you need to really go beyond appearances. You need to do source criticism. You need to understand who people are and how institutions work. But occasionally you can actually start with pretty overt statements. And I think for a long time, because people had this assumption in mind that the league meant nothing in the realm of security, they just didn't pick up on the fact that when fascist states and and certain regimes in the 30s talked about sanctions or economic war, they just basically wrote it off as a form of paranoia. But I think once you dispense with the assumption that the League meant nothing and you actually accept and reckon with the fact that it did have an important instrument in the form of sanctions, then all of a sudden these fears of blockade, this blockade phobia, as I call it in the book, comes to take on a kind of different, uh, yeah, it appears in a very different light. And that then opened the way to the, the final, once I arrived at that sort of part of my thinking that really opened the way all of a sudden to uh, the what I develop in the final one third of the book, which is uh, a first sort of sketch of a, a different interpretation of the interwar period uh, that opened itself up once those assumptions were shifted and, and, and things fell into place. And you could write the story with sanctions really much more at the center of it as a very serious thing that also had unintended consequences. Great. Yeah, I was really struck um, in your section on Italy and the sanctions on how it drove with with this kind of um, balance of payments crisis that the regime faced, how it had to mobilize the population to sort of try to suck up all of the metal from the countryside. And so you have these poor peasants, you know, trying to go to these like scrap heaps to find metal and steel, or they're turning in like their family heirlooms and their jewelry and their gold wedding rings um, to try and boost uh, basically like the accounts of the Italian fascist regime. And I think that was fascinating because then this gets into this very intense cultural history of what did you know fascism mean on the ground for people that lived under it. And a lot of it is this kind of highly mobilizational um, um, force where they're sort of constantly having to mobilize and and sort of sacrifice for the regime because of this threat of sanctions or the, the effects of sanctions. And I thought that was a really evocative part of your book. 
And then, so on this point, you sort of saying of if we take liberalism seriously, we have to take fascism seriously. And, and you develop this idea of autarky and this vision that these fascist regimes have where they're realizing if they face the threat of sanctions and they're facing this real possibility that the European empires in the United States could sort of cut them off economically from the rest of the world and they lose access to consumer goods and oil and trade and all the rest of it, then that ultimately could mean, you know, the downfall of, of their states. Then the solution, I guess, is to, well, establish your own empire, to try to establish a large enough um, um, political state where it can be self-sufficient, where, okay, if you are dependent on, you know, imports of oil, then you need to be able to expand your political power to the point where you don't have to worry about that. You can just get oil from holdings within your own state. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about this conception you have of taking sort of fascism seriously and autarky. And as you said, sort of let's call the League of Nations a League of Empires. How do we think of fascism perhaps as a kind of imperial insurgency against the older imperial order? It's a fascinating question. And really one of the things I regret not having had enough space for is developing that perspective even more in the book. And I definitely think you, what you suggest could be developed into a pretty full account of fascism and fascisms as comparative developmental empires that try and actually build up these autarkic resource bases. Part of that comes from an early 20th century perception that already even precedes World War I, that liberal powers like the United States, Britain and France have control over a lot of resources. So part of it precedes World War I. But I would still argue that it's really the instrumentalization of that material power over commodities in World War I in the form of blockade and then by the League in the form of sanctions that really supercharges and gives a very strong argument to the most radical factions in these nationalist and militarist and fascist regimes. You know, all of them, they're not homogenous, right? This is an important point of interwar history too, right? That all the people who have studied these states are in agreement that these are not monolithic regimes. They have more pragmatic, if you will, or more realist, uh, realistically minded sides uh, and, and factions in their elite, and they have more radical sides. But what the use of sanctions does is that it gives a very powerful argument to the radical faction, that participation in a world economy on terms decided by liberalism is a dangerous game. And that is something that will basically perpetually leave you in danger of being potentially blockaded. But now, under the League, there's something that's potentially even more frightening than in the World War I iteration of blockade, which is that you are not even at, officially at war with your enemies, and you don't have any belligerent rights. So you can't even openly fight back, because this is all peacetime disciplinary procedure. So this specter of blockade is a live thing. It's an active force. People refer to it with various names. Some people call it the nightmare of raw materials. And I think once I became convinced that there was a story to be told about that phenomenon, and again, I, I wish I had more space in the book to do so, it was possible once, once you kind of put that front and center to reinterpret this a little bit differently and also to show that, you know, this leads to specific policies. And I think that that was useful to, to me in strengthening the argument because one obvious objection to this is to say, well, what about the role of the Great Depression? The Great Depression, right, was an economic shock. Obviously, countries became more autarkic and more economically nationalist. This has nothing to do with sanctions. It was just a result of economic crisis. 
or to say something like these were a, a kind of political variation of that objection. Fascism was always going to be nationalist. It didn't need sanctions or the Great Depression. It was always inclined to uh, turn inward. I think that second one is quite easily countered because it's just clearly not true that fascist states were autarkic before a certain point in their own history. They were very much states that had powerful export industries and were dependent on trade that were part of things like the gold standard and international institutions. But the depression one is an important one. And here, I think one of the questions that occurred to me, and it took me quite a long time to come up with an answer, is if sanctions had such an important role in accelerating this destabilization, how come no historians before had really registered their impact uh, in a systematic way? And there is a recognition, though, that this was the case in, for example, the literature on the outbreak of the Pacific War, where the U.S. sanctions against Japan are conventionally seen by most historians as a very big contributing factor in the Japanese invasion across Southeast Asia. But this wasn't necessarily the case for Italy and Germany. And so a kind of more global view of this was in a sense missing. But I think the reason that most historians had not necessarily looked at this before was that the depression is a big confounding influence. And there's a lot of autarky talk in the 30s. It has a lot of roots in economic crisis and reactions to that. But I think it's still possible to look at specific policies and actually to be much more specific about what we mean by autarky. So not all autarkies are the same. And there are really, I think you could say the same way that you have varieties of capitalism, you have varieties of autarky. So that's another project someone should take on uh, a varieties of, of autarky, uh, yeah, taxonomy, if you will. But the specific kinds of autarky that you impose in reaction to an economic crisis and to kind of beggar thy neighbor commercial competition and trade wars is very different from the kind of autarky that you need to survive sanctions. And there again, the from the horse's mouth method was very uh, fruitful because Mussolini's main economic foreign exchange minister, Felice Guarnieri, he at some point says, most countries in the 1930s are happy to be protectionist as producers, but free trade, free trading as consumers. And that really is striking because when people say autarky, they sometimes mean things like, oh, you put up tariff walls. But that's not autarky because that means that you might still very much import enormous amounts of things that just protects your own producers. It means that other countries cannot bring goods into your market to compete. But it says nothing about your actual material dependence on the outside world. And that is precisely where you do see the fascist regimes going much further than a purely depression, economic ra rationale driven turn towards economic self-reliance would get you. Uh, so they started to do things like making oil from coal, right? Fuel hydrogenation. They begin to be much more interested in control directly over big, you know, lumpy raw materials, things like iron ore, coal but also textiles coming up with synthetic textiles because textiles are actually a massive employment generator in industrial economies in the thirties. So if you can cut off the supply of textiles, you immediately throw somewhere between 20 to 45% of the workforce out of, out of a job. That's definitely going to have a big economic effect. So all of those things, if you look at them, they cannot really be explained as reactions to the great depression because they're simply too costly and they're not necessary to protect yourself from trade competition. They can only be justified by a fear that goes beyond it. That's a political fear, a security fear. And that's, I think, why they're pretty conclusive proof that sanctions had a, a powerful effect on the, the, para, the paranoia that, that some of these fascist states developed.
Great. And, and on that point of paranoia, you also, I forget maybe the exact term as you call it, but near the end of the book and you segue into World War II, this kind of chronological fear or this sort of chronological paranoia that the fascist regimes have that they need to move quickly, immediately in the, in the face of the threat of sanctions to gain um, sort of autarky in the second sense of not protecting like their own production, but gain, gaining access to natural resources in the threat of the ability of the European great powers in the United States to sort of cut them off from the other global economies. And I think um, I kind of want to break this, this question up into two points because you have your account of Japan, I think, is really fascinating in this book, because even though you obviously are talking uh, in the majority of it about Europe um, and of the United States, you have this great depiction of Japan and Japan's motivations in invading Manchuria and setting up Manchuko and then kind of the radicalization of the militarist wing under this sort of fear of sanctions and Japan's sort of lack of natural resources on, on the islands. And they're trying to sort of play the great power game. And then, and sort of once they start the war, it's sort of like they're under this clock, right? The timer has begun and they have to advance as far, like to a certain degree, or they recognize that they're going to collapse um, due to this um, hard resources material crisis. And so that motivates a further extremism of Japanese in actions and invasions during the war because they invade Southeast Asia and Indonesia in an attempt to get access to further oil wells. And ultimately the attack on Pearl Harbor, as you said, many historians agree now, is a reaction to sanctions from the US. And so how sanctions act as a radicalizing element within the war itself for Japan. Um, but then that, then to sort of move it on to another point I have is that you have this really amazing depiction, I think, or this really kind of provocative depiction of Lend-Lease as the real culmination of League of Nations sanctions policy. And you tie it to, I think, Article 16 of, of I think, the Treaty of Versailles regarding economic sanctions, where it's not just a matter that sanctions are a negative force of punishment and of cutting um, um, belligerent states off from the world economy, but it's also there's supposed to be a positive element of positive reinforcement to states that are under threat of war through economic aid and how you sort of argue that Lend-Lease through the United States is sort of this transition point where America will now become the dominant sanctions power in the world. Yeah, so uh, I think maybe to get at the, the Lend-Lease point, it's useful to backtrack a little bit because there is one thing that I was also very struck by and it's actually kind of technical international initiative that the League takes in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s that goes nowhere ultimately. It is an abortive effort at creating a new bit of the League bureaucracy internationally, but it's a really interesting one. And you could only imagine what the interwar period would have looked like if this facility had been created. And it's called the Convention on Financial Assistance. And the, the idea basically is based on the same economic logistics and mobilization effort of economic total war in World War One, the blockade was the negative part, focused on interdiction, but there was also an inter-allied supply effort going on. And Jamie Martin's book, The Meddlers, is going to look at a different kind of afterlife of this, but he also has a great chapter in his manuscripts uh, that, I, that I read on, on precisely this. It's where people like Keynes and Jean Monnet, for example, are working. And the people involved in that uh, Arthur Salter, the head of the League's economic and financial section, is another one. The people involved in that actually carry on this legacy where they believe that it's actually important if you want to stop a war, not just to punish the aggressor, but to provide aid to the victim. So 
help the weak rather than punish the strong, because that, that, that's ultimately going to do much more for international stability. And this is interestingly taken up by a number of liberals and a number of private sector people in the city of London in the 1920s. And they get this very interesting and striking vision of a kind of international lending program that will be activated by the same sanctions mechanism of the League Council in Article 16 of the Covenant that you mentioned. But when, the, when this is activated, it will make available loans to the country that's a victim of aggression. And this is actually a, a, an initiative that's taken by countries like Finland and Poland, and they're supported by France through its network, you know, the Little Entente. So a lot of Eastern European countries are behind this, but smaller league states everywhere put a lot of hope in this. And even Ethiopia, it's often forgotten, Ethiopia too, in the Italo-Ethiopian War, puts in an official request for a big loan from the League and it's turned down. So there's a serious path not taken, basically, in the, in the 30s, that this conventional financial assistance is broadly endorsed, but it's never entered, uh, it never enters into force because it's tied to the uh, global disarmament efforts that go nowhere. And so it, it doesn't ever get activated actually but the discussions are there the proposals there the entire kind of mindset to do this is there and it's just that there's no country willing to take the risk in the 30s particularly after the depression when the focus is on budget balancing right austerity maybe hanging on to the gold standard um so there's never this thing but i think it's a really interesting thing as well that that would have really changed the entire face of the league if there had been this permanent anti-aggression financial facility uh, it's very much like a European financial stability facility that you saw in the Euro crisis or even some of these IMF crisis lending programs, right? It, it would really make available a lot of money internationally quite quickly. And Lend-Lease becomes, in a belated way, the way that the US enters World War II when everyone else is already fighting. But it's also the way in which this thing that never got to be realized in the interwar period does actually end up becoming a reality in the 40s. And it becomes really crucial to the Allied war effort. So Lendlease already predates the official US declaration of war uh, on, on, on Japan and on Germany. And um, it's, it's already in effect from March 1941 onwards. And it's very interesting because one other reason why you can really see it, it carries on an older legacy of interwar internationalism. And it's actually not that much about the US as I think it's often made out to be is that there's a massive gap between rhetoric and reality about Lendlease. The rhetoric about Lendlease is that it is famously the arsenal of democracy, that this is a thing that FDR puts in, into place and it you know, funds the war effort of democracy. And it leads you to this whole big kind of Manichaean vision of the 30s and 40s as it was all about democracies versus dictatorships. But actually, I think that that's misleading. I think a, you know, of course, there are many countries that are fighting on the side of the allies that are not democracies at all. And a lot of this fight was about the territorial order and about the principle of state sovereignty and not violating territorial sovereignty uh, with invasion. It was a, it's aggression that was the problem, not domestic political institutions. And the first recipients of Lend-Lease are the British Empire, Nationalist China under Chiang Kai-shek, who's a dictator, uh, it's offered also to Yugoslavia, which is quickly overthrown by a military coup afterwards, in Greece, where there's an almost fascist dictator, Metaxas. And then it's offered to Turkey, where there's also basically a one-party state under the successors of Ataturk. So only the British Empire can be remotely called a democracy among the early recipients of Lendlease. So it's very clear this is about countering aggression. It's not about protecting 
domestic political institutions yet it's purely about interstate stability and there there's also an important link with the united nations because the united nations also puts this as its first priority it's preventing interstate war and that's why you get big non-liberal powers like Chiang Kai-shek's China and also the Soviet Union, of course, being on the UN Security Council. So bringing in the history of this positive assistance mechanism and also the particular and very conscious decision not to make it about uh, about political ideology, a kind of ideological agnosticism, I think it really explains why the post-World War II order is like more capacious and kind of more stable because it is able to bridge these ideological divides that the League of Nations never was, because the League of Nations always rejected um, these these kind of big um, chasms. And not even all liberal powers were in it. The US was out of it, and it only belatedly accepted the Soviets and then kicked them out again after five years. So uh, it, it, I think, again, in an interesting way, allows you to uh, yeah, take a new look at some of these international institutions and why some of them uh, were... Uh, in a sense, more effective and more stable than others. Great. And and I think what's fascinating is, is sort of how you end the book right at the end of the war. And so there's the sort of the birth of the Cold War in just a handful of years. Um, and it's from the logic of the book, I was really struck by this idea that it's, it's no coincidence then that superpower hegemony conflict is going to be between these two massive states that are the only states in the world that could have any kind of claim to actual autarky in terms of access to self-sufficient natural resources, who then are then able themselves to dictate a broader globalized order of smaller states regarding their access to resources through international institutions. Um, and I thought that was very fascinating. And so I'm, now I'm gonna kind of shift gears a little bit and ask, uh, do you have any future projects sort of in, in, in the waiting or are you sort of just, you finish the, this first book, you're taking a breather, or is there some like, or were there any sort of further research um, ideas that you had while doing this book that you want to develop further? Yes, uh, absolutely. So one thing I, I'm currently working on that's just a, at a small kind of article level is the difference between rhetoric and reality when it comes to the history and memory of economic war, and particularly the blockade of World War One is this really divisive issue in international politics, the first model for how economic pressure is supposed to work, but one that's deeply contested. And also, it's not actually really clear how big its contribution to the defeat of the central powers was. So that's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, uh, not just these hard material factors, but actually the cultural and historical memory of this and the way that the, a lot of these experiences are not politically clear cut at all. They're very uh, contestable and they end up you know, becoming the object of narratives that are constructed around them that become used as shorthand in political debate, right? And and I think that that's something we can see right now. So I'm I'm interested in that as a an interface between um, history and 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 the present and and uh, efficacy in policy making and how we try and use history as a way of thinking about that. The other uh, two kind of bigger projects that I'm I'm currently thinking about and, and working on. My main one is actually uh, some, well, actually both of them come out of the this, this sanctions book and project in some way. The first is a book about the history of property confiscation in uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's really because I became so interested in the administrative states that grows as a result of sanctions. How does the state take over assets when it freezes them? How does it find them within borders? And that, again, I think, let me down all sorts of rabbit holes to think also about 
how expropriation is really not perceived the historical treatment that is commensurate with its importance to the politics of the 19th and 20th century. You know, everything from the emancipation of serfs uh, in, in Russia down through economic uh, total war, the age of extremes um, and uh, land reform, uh, all sorts of major uh, ways that, you know, we now know, thanks to people like Piketty, that wealth concentrations also were severely reduced. Confiscation and nationalization clearly had roles to play in that, and they were deeply contentious and everyone was doing it. So that's one book that I'm currently working on. And the other one, which is a more longer term one, but it also comes out of this. And actually, the last question that we discussed is I am thinking about doing something like a global history of lend lease because it's such an interesting moment. It happens in a very short amount of time, about three, four years. It's an operation for four years, but it totally changes the face of the earth materially in terms of circulating actually goods produced in the United States, equipment used in the United States, the entire Red Army using trucks built by Studebaker in South Bend, Indiana. And it's it's a way in which in material, in a material sense, the world comes is already basically paved with the physical stuff of American hegemony before America assumes that role. So that's one thing. And I think this is a story that goes through places like Iran, Burma, India, Latin America. It goes through small European nations. It goes from factories in the Midwest all the way to the Eastern Front. It's a very interesting kind of story that can, I think, only be told globally. But that's that's uh, another project. Um, yeah, for the future. So those are kind of the things I'm, I'm uh, working on at the moment. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, things I'm, I'm really looking forward to. And I, I would like to take a breather as well, but I feel that there's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, history never never sleeps. Um, That's right. Those must sound great. I'm looking forward to those. I'm also wondering if you maybe talk just a little bit about um, this broader kind of intellectual um, sort of network that you're a part of, this history and political economy project. I think you're on the advisory board. This seems to be sort of fusing a lot of these historiographical trends that are at play um, right now. If you could talk about that and what, what that project is. Absolutely. So this is something that uh, Quinn uh, Slobodian and Christy Thornton uh, have set up together, and it's uh, going to now unroll a number of initiatives. Part of it is really meant to support research for graduate students, which is a really exciting thing. So research grants on, on projects that have to do with economic history and political economy. There is a particular focus on the 20th century and on the study of neoliberalism in a very broadly conceived sense. But there is also going to be another part of that project that is focused on the translation of lost classics. So actually, you know, there's, of course, a lot of interesting history, interesting source material from other countries uh, uh, that hasn't, I think, been absorbed yet in the English language literature on neoliberalism and economic history. Uh, and the, the History and Political Economy project will also take a role in that. And then I think it's really a, a kind of community of scholars, of uh, graduate students, uh, early career scholars uh, working together in that space. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's still, you know, at, at the at beginning stage now, but uh, I think, uh, you know, keep an eye on its Twitter page and on the, on, on the Internet. And I think uh, people will find out more about it soon. Great. Well, Nick, this has been fascinating. Um, everybody, I highly recommend you read The Economic Weapon. I think this is going to become a very important book in the historiography of the interwar period, of economic planning, um, of the League of Nations. Um, Nick, do you have any parting thoughts? Anything else you want to uh, plug or that you're working on? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I just feel, you know, uh, it's a really a pleasure to, to be talking about this. 
and uh, yeah, I, if anyone is interested in any of this or uh, if they want to get in touch about anything, uh, my, my email uh, is always open. So uh, I, I look forward to hearing from people. Uh, and, and one of the things, you know, this is always a regret you have after writing a book is that you couldn't go into more depth on all sorts of important aspects. So there are little stray bits all over the book that could be expanded into other things. And I uh, am I'm very uh, enthusiastic about hearing from people that have more information that can correct or improve on uh, bits of that or just sparking a thought that they have or an interesting connection with their own interests. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was... Uh, I think the funnest part of doing this book was also pulling some of those threads together. And so that's something that I'm always uh, yeah, very excited about talking to other people about. Great. Well, Nick, uh, I think we've brought it to, uh, to an end. Thank you so much uh, for your time um, and for your very in-depth discussion on your book. Um, for our listeners, again, I can't highly uh, plug this book enough. Thank you. And uh, all right, Nick, I look forward to your future work. <laughs> Thanks, Matthias. Thanks.